podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Wednesday, the 6th of April, brought to you by epilindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change location, access whatever it is you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Go to libertyshield.com, use the code EPL25, that's EPL25, to get 25, 25% off at checkout, whether it's the hardware or software packages, 25% off with Liberty Shield at libertyshield.com, the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, two games in the Champions League last night. Two very different games. There was a very good game of football played in Lisbon between Benfica and Liverpool, in which Liverpool won 3-1. A near-perfect first-half performance in which Liverpool could have been 5-up, by halftime, but we're only two up because of some poor finishing, we'll call it. Diaz should have scored. Salah should have scored. Keita Cudden should have scored at least one, probably two. Andy Robertson overhit a cross that would have led to a simple Mo Salah header at the back post. But an Ibu Kanate header on 17 from a Robertson corner and a Sadio Mane tap-in on 34 after an exceptional pass from Trent Alexander-Arnold and a good cushioned header from Luis Diaz gave him the simple chance. Liverpool were brilliant in the first half. The midfield of Keita, Fabinho and Thiago was just a different class altogether. No matter what the game asked for, they were able to do it. They seemed to absolutely thrive in the atmosphere, which, by the way, credit to the Benfica fans, the atmosphere was incredible. Naby was working between the lines. Thiago was keeping things taking over and opening things up. And you had Fabinho doing all the Fabinho things. And Liverpool were humming along. Trent was out of this world with his passing. Robertson was overlapping constantly. Van Dijk was dictating things from the back, organising and cajoling people. And Kanate was bullying Darwin Nunes. The front three had moments where you would have liked them to do a little bit better. The chances missed for both the wide players. Mane's first touch was a bit like a curb. But all things considered, that first half was as close to perfection as you could ask for, for an 11 that have never played together before. Second half started. Benfica came out and got a goal on 49. But it's a bad mistake from Canate rather than anything good that Benfica did. It's a decent break. It's an okay cross. Canate should deal with it very comfortably. Gets his feet wrong. Ball goes to Nunes. It's a good finish. But it's all on that Canate mistake. If he doesn't get his feet in a tangle, he clears it simply and nothing comes of it. If nothing comes of it, Liverpool regain control. The game got very open and went very end-to-end at this point. Liverpool made three substitutions on 60, bringing on Firmino, Jota and Henderson. Firmino made a massive difference, dropping into midfield. His ability to hold the ball up and slow things down was a real difference maker here. But Benfica, to their credit, kept going, kept trying, kept pushing. And Liverpool really struggled to create anything in this period. But they did go 3-1 up on 87 minutes. Brilliant work from Naby Keita. Sets Luis Diaz through and he finishes past the keeper. Goes round him and finishes in 
very confident fashion. Uh, Diogo Jota should have scored late on. Jordan Henderson's first good involvement of the game, a very good pass, but Jota couldn't finish. Uh, Liverpool will go home for the second leg and be very confident now with a two-goal lead that they will go through. Benfica, though, won't be scared, won't have anything to lose in that game. They know that they can cause Liverpool some trouble. They know that in Darwin Nunes, they do have a weapon that teams will find difficult to keep out for 90 minutes. He was the one real bright spark for them last night. His pace, his power, his ability to work the channels, carry the ball. Good first touch, good control, good in close spaces. Unselfish player. Needs to learn to stay on his feet a little bit more. That's the one criticism I'd put on him. But aside from that, considering who he was going up against, I thought he had a very good performance to them last night. In the other game, it wasn't quite as fun to watch. In fact, it was one of the least enjoyable games that I've seen in the last couple of years. Atletico Madrid came, parked the bus, then brought on another bus, then dug a trench, And then just got random people to stand in the way. It was horrible to watch. If you're an Atleti fan, maybe you enjoyed it. But if you're a neutral, and I'm sure if you're a City fan, you definitely didn't enjoy it. Atletico Madrid in 94 minutes had zero shots on goal. 29% of the ball. Committed 13 fouls. Drew three yellow cards had no corners, but were caught offside twice. They played what can only really be described as a back seven uh, with three midfielders and nobody in attack. They just set out to spoil the game and City fans who hadn't witnessed El Cholo in full El Cholo mode before took to social media to vent their frustrations I mean, when you're used to watching Guardiola and they've now been watching Guardiola for, I think this is year six, and all of a sudden you're presented with Simeone and what he likes to bring to the party. It it is quite a stark contrast. And, you know, the the range of emotions, it, it goes from frustration this is now if you're an opposition fan. If you're a Atleti fan, I just assume you're like shotgunning vodka through your eye or something because, you know, why not? Uh, but for opposition fans, you begin with frustration. They frustrate you through the first 25 minutes or so. Then it becomes anger. Then you start to get really angry because they haven't left their own half yet. And you're furious because your team just can't break them down. Now, normally around 65 is when the despair sets in. And you start to feel like no matter how long this game goes, nothing good is going to come from it. City managed to score on 70. So that stopped the range of emotions at despair, brought some joy. The last 20 minutes were even more ugly than what had come before the goal. So it reset back to frustration. Didn't go quite long enough to get to anger for the second time, but did avoid the tears that normally accompany um the last 10 minutes of a game against Atleti. Those are tears of frustration, of anger, and of despair. All of that comes together in the last 10 minutes when you have been shithoused by Atletico Madrid because there's no other word to describe it. I do try not to swear on this podcast, but as I've said, sometimes swearing is necessary, and it is necessary when trying to describe the dark arts of Atletico Madrid. Now, this Atletico team aren't nearly as bad as the Atletico team from 2013 to 2019 because they're not nearly as good. 
Like, Old Black is still there, but he's having a down season. They've had a big downgrade in defence. No Godin, no Philippe Louise, and no Juan Fran. Jimenez is still there, but he's not the same as he was. No, he didn't play last night. So, you know, you're looking at Savage, Average, Felipe, Garbage, Mandava, not really up to much. Simi Versalco never developed into the player he, he should have been. Renan Lodi is a good player. He's just not an Atletico Madrid player. The the old midfield, the, the Koke, Thomas Partey or Rodri, Saul midfield has been replaced by Lorente, Koke and Condogbia. Uh, Lorente and Condogbia can't lace the boots of Tomas, Rodri or Saul. And Koke is not quite the same player he was. Up front, Griezmann is there, but he's not the same Griezmann as before. And as much as I love Joe Felix, he's not as suited to this team as Diego Costa was. When they had that team, they were just horrible to play against. But if, like me, you are a Simeone fan, you loved it. And I may well be the biggest Simeone fan who's not an Atletico Madrid supporter. Two league titles, two Champions League finals, two Europa Leagues. His methods work. Whether you like them or not, they work. And City, after a very hard slog last night, now have to get themselves back up for Liverpool at the weekend and then face this again next week. And if you think it's going to be different because City are one up, you're wildly mistaken. Wildly mistaken. Simeone will once again set his team up the same way. He might change some of the personnel, but the mindset and the game plan will be the same. They'll just try and force things a bit more. They'll try and force some set-piece opportunities. And they'll try and score from one of them. And if they score from one of them, they're taking down the goalposts, digging trenches, planting hedges, whatever they need to do they're going to play for extra time and then penalties. If they get a goal, that is going to be an absolute war of attrition for City to try and get through. Um, Phil Foden did make a big impact on the game once he came on last night. Uh, He came on on 68 and immediately created a goal for De Bruyne. It's some brilliant play by him um, and a lovely little... Lovely little pass to De Bruyne, who finishes exquisitely. Absolute exquisite finish. But, you know, it's notable. He brought on, Pep brought on Foden, Gabriel Jesus and Grealish on 68. The next thing that happened on 69 minutes is Rodrigo de Paul getting a yellow card. And I'll read you what has been transcribed in... uh, a match commentary here. Rodrigo de Paul welcomes Grealish onto the pitch by booting him up in the air. (laughs) It's just the most Atletico thing you could possibly do. Just absolutely hockey somebody up into the air. Rodrigo de Paul had already come on eight minutes beforehand. He was brought on for Koke. Angel Correa came on for Griezmann. Matthias Cunha came on for Lorente, they're just, they're a different breed of club. You you really have to understand that they they don't care what you view as football played the right way. The only thing Diego Simeone cares about is winning. He, He would rather win every single game from now until the end of his life, one nil, than be involved in a single 5-4, 4-3. He doesn't want the plaudits. He doesn't want you to laud him for revolutionising the game the way Guardiola is. He doesn't care about any of that. There was a good story in The Independent yesterday from uh, Miguel Delaney uh, regarding before Simeone took the... Position as Atletico Madrid manager, he went to Barcelona to 
watch what Pep was doing, watch what he was creating to view training and, and get some tips. Um, and he immediately just started to disagree with lots of, of what Pep was saying and doing uh, and saying that it wasn't for him. Magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. He just doesn't care. He didn't care as a player, but he had a hell of a career. He doesn't care as a manager, but he's had a hell of a career. And it's not just that Atleti that he's had success as a manager. He won the Argentinian title with Estudiantes, the first job he had. He won it again with River Plate. And now he's gone on to have such great success with Atleti. You know, there's a reason he had success with Atletico Madrid, Inter Milan and Lazio as a player as well. And obviously with the Argentine national team as well. He just doesn't care. All he cares about is winning. It's the only thing that matters to him is winning. And he does it. He's a serial winner. And what he, like, what he overcomes is incredible. When you think about the financial gap between Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid and Barcelona, it is staggering what he's been able to do there. And I know people like to say, oh, he, set, he spent a bunch of money. He did because his players were sold on him. Like, in one summer, he lost three quarters of his starting defence and the fella he had long tagged as the replacement at centre-back for Diego Godin. Lost all of those in one summer and Antoine Griezmann and Rodri in one summer. Six players who were of massive importance to him, all gone in one summer. Years of work out the window. No one else recovers from that. Not without having hundreds of million to spend on top of the money that's come in. He didn't have that. He got the money that came in and that's what he was able to spend. And he doesn't have full control of transfers either. So he was bought some dreck, some good players, but some dreck as well. And people seem to get upset about something he said yesterday. He pointed out that Pep is an incredible manager. That's the first thing he highlighted was Pep's talent as a manager. But he made the point that he, he has been very lucky in his career. And he has. Nobody can deny that. You can't deny Pep has been incredibly lucky. His first managerial job, he walks in the door waiting for him. Are Messi, Busquets, Iniesta and Xavi. Four of the best players ever. And Carlos Puyol, one of the best central defenders ever. One of the best captains ever. That's just waiting for him when he walks in the door. Along with the likes of Samuel Eto'o, Yaya Toure, players of that nature. You know, other really good players. Danny Alves was waiting for him. Another one of the best players of all time. So, you know, that's a very fortunate situation to walk into. Obviously, that doesn't win you titles in Champions Leagues. That part, Pep has a massive input on. But it's a little bit like claiming you hit a home run when you started on third base. You know, it's a bit like winning a 100-meter dash when everybody says, why don't you have an 80-meter head start? He walked into Bayern Munich, who just won the European Cup. He walked into City, who'd won multiple league titles, had De Bruyne, Sterling, Aguero, Silva, company, Yaya, Zabaleta, etc., 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 now, he gets the opportunities because he's a great manager, but he has been very fortunate with the opportunities he's walked into. Did I mention that he also walked into Manchester City, who were happy to give him a billion quid to spend? But it is what it is. He gets the opportunities because he's great, but he's been very, very lucky that the first opportunity he got was the golden opportunity that any manager in the history of time would give anything to have. Lionel Messi, Andreas Iniesta, Sergio Busquets, Xavi Hernandez, Dani Alves, Gerard Piquet, Yaya Toure, 
Samuel Eto'o, and Carlos Puyol. I mean, come on. Like I said, it's like winning the 100-meter dash when you start on the 80-yard line. You're almost there. Pedri, Pedro, Pedro was there as well. Now, I know he gave him the chance, but he was at the club already. He didn't have to go and scout him. Didn't have to go and buy him. He was already there. Those lads were there. Compare and contrast with Jurgen Klopp taking over Mines, taking over Dortmund, who were in the toilet, taking over a dreadful Liverpool team. Same thing with Simeone at Atletico. They were muck. Absolute muck. Conte with Juventus. They finished seventh the year before. Conte with Inter. They were trash. Conte with Chelsea. That's why I say those four are the four best managers in the world. And I, I refuse to accept that one is a better level than the other because... While Pep has had the most success, he's had the most handed to him. And he's had the most money. But what the others have done for me, considering what they walked into, is every bit as impressive. Pep wouldn't have taken the Spurs job. Let's just put it that way. Not a chance would he have taken the Spurs job. He wouldn't have taken the Liverpool job in 2015. He wouldn't have taken the Atletico Madrid job. No chance. No chance. If Pep leaves Manchester City when his contract ends in 2023, I expect he takes a year out, he surveys the field, and he takes whatever club is already 80% of the way there. Juve, be easy to win a couple of titles with them. PSG, easy to win titles there. Juve is who I expect if he comes back to club football. The alternative is, I think he goes and manages international football. He's spoken before about how he'd love to manage Brazil. I think that would be fascinating. But in many ways, he's sort of the counterpoint to Brazilian football because Pep is very system-focused. And if you watch City play, a lot of what they do is very repetitive and almost robotic in nature. It's why some people say that they think they're boring. It's a lot of automated actions and attack. That goes completely against the nature of Brazilian football. But with the talent he'd have at his disposal, I do think he could create something ferocious there. He could obviously take the Spain job. I think that would be... Uh, something he'd like as well. I mean, what age is Pep? He can't be much more than mid-50s. 51. So if he leaves City in 23, he'll be 52. If he takes a year off, he'll be 53. He could do maybe one cycle with Brazil to take over after... Hmm. See, I think ideally he'd like to take over after World Cup and build towards the next one. But that would mean not taking over until 2026. That would be three years. So he'd have to find something to amuse himself with for a couple of years. I think he'd like a four-year run at a World Cup. But anyway, people got themselves all worked up over... Simeone simply simply pointing out the truth. Ignored the fact he did point out Pep is an incredible coach. He's he's a genius. But he's been very lucky. Simple as that. Um, tonight in the Champions League, we have two games. We have Villarreal against Bayern Munich. Villarreal, obviously came through from the same group as Manchester United. And then, I suppose somewhat surprisingly, dumped out Juventus in the last round. Uh, 1-1 draw at home and beat them 3-0 away. Bayern 
came through their group very comfortably. Had a bit of a scare against Salzburg, 1-1 draw away, but then beat them 7-1 at home, just to emphasise the point. Uh, Chelsea came through their group quite comfortably. That was the group with Juventus. And last time out, they knocked out Lille, 2-1 in both games. Real Madrid, they were always going to get to the knockout phases. They always get those favourable draws. They made a bit of a meal of it with the likes of Sheriff Tiraspol, but they came through comfortably. And then they looked dead and buried. Against PSG, they looked dead and buried. They lost the first leg 1-0. Ancelotti got absolute pelters. They went 1-0 down in the second leg. And for all intents and purposes, they were out. And then PSG did what PSG do and found a new and exciting way to bottle the game. And Real romped home, 3-1 winners on the night, 3-2 in aggregate. And if if there was going to be more goals scored that night, they were all going to be scored by Real. So Bayern will be strong favourites to beat Villarreal. But Chelsea-Real is probably the hardest to pick of the four ties in the quarterfinals. It's the most even. This is not the great Real team of a few years ago, but this Chelsea team has some big question marks around it. Some big, big question marks around it. It's a story on the BBC website today about Carlo and why perhaps his job could be on the line. So do give that a read. It's uh, it's actually very interesting. It's by Andy West, who's their Spanish football writer. Do give that one a read. Um, we have one Premier League game tonight. Burnley at home to Everton. And this is one of the most important games remaining in the Premier League. Everton are 17th, Burnley are 19th. If Everton win, I think that's going to be them safe. Now, they'll still need to pick up a couple more points from their remaining games, but they do play Brentford at home. And they will have Crystal Palace at home in a midweek game after what could potentially have been an FA Cup final for Palace. They also have Watford away. But if Burnley win, it makes things really interesting. Everton win, they're six points clear of the relegation zone with the game in hand over Watford and seven points clear of Burnley. If Burnley win, Burnley are only one point behind Everton. Same amount of games played and Burnley have an easier run in. Burnley have Norwich next. They have Southampton at home. They play Watford. They get Villa home and away. So potentially could pick up a win in one of those. And they get Newcastle at home on the final day. Everton's run-in is horrible. Like, they're the arsenal of the bottom end of the table. It's embarrassing that they are where they are, considering they've had the easiest schedule to date of the teams at the bottom. Everton go Burnley away, Manchester United at home, Leicester at home, Liverpool away, Chelsea at home, Leicester away, Watford away, Brentford at home, Palace at home, Arsenal away. That's a horrendous run-in if they're going to need to pick up points. If Burnley win tonight, it's really hard to see Everton staying up. It's really hard to see how Burnley don't take one point more than them the rest of the way. Considering Burnley have the superior goal difference. It's really hard to see how Burnley don't take more than one point, considering the fixtures both teams have the rest of the way. If Everton win, they'll be fine. Going into the game, Everton have some big question marks, though. There's a lot of players absent for Frank Lampard's team. And the fact that they're managed by Frank Lampard, that's a question mark. Nathan Patterson, 
just had an operation on his ankle. He's out for a while. Yerry Mina is out. Donny van de Beek is out. Michael Keane is suspended. Alan is suspended. Andre Gomes is out. Tom Davies is out. And Andros Townsend is out. So at centre-back, they're likely going to have to go Holgate and Godfrey, which isn't ideal against Veghorst, who's six seven or so. They don't have an available ball winner in midfield, so it's likely going to have to be Fabian Delph with Ducouré. That's not ideal either. Not a great situation for Everton heading into this game. Uh, Burnley, Ben Mee is out, but they do have Nathan Collins, so they're in good situation there. Eric Peters is out. He's the backup left-back. Matthias Vidra is out. He wouldn't be starting, but he is a miss off the bench. And Johan Berg-Goodmanson, poor fella. He just can't stay fit. Um, he might be starting for them if he was fit, but he's just had such horrible luck with injuries. The last three seasons, 13 games, 22 games, 18 games this season. He's played, I may have played one or two more, has he? No, I think he's just been out for that, that long. That's rough because he is a very good player. I really liked him at Charlton. Yeah, tough times. I'm going to predict a Burnley win at home, midweek, under the lights, in front of their crowd, Everton with no central defender capable of dominating in the air against Veghorst. The goalkeeper has tiny arms. He's not going to come out and claim too much off the head of Veghorst. I am going to go for a 2-0 Burnley win. A 2-0 Burnley win. I think Everton are in big, big trouble. I'm going to take a break. When we come back, it's just the news and the gossip, and we'll be out of here. I've seen a few. Right, welcome back. So, we have some news. Um, Ronald Koeman will replace Louis van Gaal as Netherlands boss after the World Cup. Koeman, of course, resigned as Netherlands boss to take over as manager of Barcelona. That went tragically bad. It went tragically bad. Tragic is the wrong word. It went terribly badly. The Netherlands team did not do well under Frank de Boer, who was drafted in to replace Koeman. Uh, they've done better under Van Hal, but Van Hal has revealed he is receiving treatment for prostate cancer. Um, Koeman did a really good job in his first spell as national team manager. In a two-year reign, he completely rebuilt the team and gave them a brand new identity, and they were playing some wonderful football. So hopefully, hopefully, he will stick about and see the job through this time. Stay the whole four years, get through a Euros, get to a World Cup. Let's see what you can do over a four-year span. Uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin has spoken out and says he believes it is difficult for young players to express themselves under the magnifying glass of being a Premier League footballer. The Everton forward is a strong interest in fashion, has been, been pictured in some daring outfits. We might play football, but we're human beings too, he told GQ magazine. It's difficult for young players to express themselves and live a life which is under the magnifying glass. Sometimes you feel like you can't let your hair down or feel free as a human being. For me, wearing clothes and suits that divide opinion is what I like doing, so I'm going to continue doing it. I really admire how brave he is in some of his fashion choices. Now, I wouldn't wear them because I'd look ridiculous in them, but he can pull it off. He can pull a lot of these looks off, and fair play to him. Um, he does need to focus a little bit more on his football right at this moment, though, because Everton are a train wreck, and he has not been good since coming back from injury. I saw a tweet the other day saying that Christian Eriksen recovered quicker from being dead than Dominic Calvert-Lewin did from a toe injury, which, while maybe in poor taste, 
isn't all that far from the truth. Um, yeah, Everton could really do with him turning up tonight and for the rest of the season. Matt Letissier, once a wonderful football player, now an absolute gobshite, has stepped aside for, again, swearing is sometimes necessary. Trust me when I tell you it's necessary here. He has stepped aside from his role as an ambassador at former club Southampton. The former midfielder said he took the step to separate the work I believe in from my relationship with the club. I don't think tweeting out conspiracy theories and anti-vax nonsense and COVID denier garbage is work, but you do you. On Tuesday, he deleted a tweet suggesting media manipulation in the reporting on the war in Ukraine. I need to know, does Matt Letizia have a Sky subscription that somehow gives him Fox News? Because much of the drivel and dross that comes out of his mouth is stuff directly from the mouth of your Tucker Carlson's and Laura Ingraham's and those type of generally terrible people. Uh, My views are my own and always have been. It's important that I take this step today to avoid any confusion. I will always remain a fan and supporter of everything Saints. I can, however, see that due to recent events, it's important to separate the work I believe in from my relationship with the club. After deleting the tweet in the, about the war in Ukraine, the 53-year-old said it was because people were missing the point and insisted he did not advocate, advocate war in any shape or form. Uh, they weren't missing the point. What he did was he quote-tweeted uh, a far-right news outlet and said this uh, when it was basically a list of all the major events in the world over the last two years or so, saying that the media had basically made up a narrative around most of COVID, all that kind of stuff. Um, In recent years, the England International has become known for its outspoken views, including on the media and the COVID pandemic. But speaking to The Telegraph in November, he rejected suggestions that he was a conspiracy theorist. He 100% is a conspiracy theorist. All of the stuff he put out regarding COVID was straight from conspiracy websites. Uh, Letizia was appointed a club ambassador in 2019. He is Southampton's second all-time leading goal scorer after scoring 209 goals in 540 games between 1986 and 2002. He became a pundit on Sky and was obviously part of the Soccer Saturday program until August 2020, when thankfully, thankfully he was taken off the air. Uh, Matt Letizier was a genuinely wonderful footballer, one of the most talented players the Premier League has ever seen, who I think it's fair to say didn't fully commit to being a professional footballer, wasn't necessarily a big fan of you know cardio workouts or conditioning training. Uh, and relied heavily on just his pure natural ability. And that was enough. It was enough, because he was so good. But he won PFA Young Player of the Year in 1990 and was in the PFA Team of the Year in 95, but really and truly should have been in those teams every single year because he was that spectacular, that capable of being that spectacular. But... He just didn't bother his arse. And he stayed at Southampton his whole career. I think largely because they let him do what he wanted. But you look at like some of the seasons he put together. Now, the later seasons, as he got older and he had more injuries, you'd write off. But 1990, he scores 24 goals in 44 games in all competitions. The next year, 23 and 43. The following year, he scores 15 in 51. It's a down year for him. 18 and 44, 25 in 40, 30 and 49, 10 and 43. Don't know what happened that year. 16 and 38, 14 in 30. His his collection of his 10 best goals is better than anyone else that's played in the Premier League era. 
It just is. He scored two goals on a Monday night against Newcastle at the Dell that are probably among the 10 to 15 best goals the league has ever seen. Um, His goal against Blackburn, when he beat two men and then dinked Tim Flowers from 35 yards, is easily top five. Uh, His chip over Peter Schmeichel was ridiculous. I haven't mentioned any of the free kick goals he scored, but there's a dozen or more that are absolute worldies. Matt Letizia's footballing ability was sensational. He was a joy to watch. For those that didn't see him, imagine Berbatov, the attitude of Berbatov, and the free kick slash long range shooting ability of Kevin De Bruyne. A combination of those two. The passing of De Bruyne as well. The passing of Berbatov too, to be fair. But he had basically that combination. It was just different class. And it's such a shame that there's just a younger generation now that didn't see him play and only know him as that really, really weird fella off Twitter. Because that's what he is now. A really weird fella on Twitter. Uh, On to the gossip. Paris Saint-Germain have made an offer to Paul Pogba as he enters the final months of his Manchester United contract. But the League One club have offered less money than United. Uh, When you have a team with Neymar and Messi, I, I just don't know that adding a midfielder who doesn't run is a good idea. But you do you, PSG. Real Madrid remain confident of signing Kylian Mbappe despite reports that he is closing on a deal to agree to stay at Paris Saint-Germain. Um, I, those reports only came out of poor outlets, so I wouldn't really put it. He's going to go to Real. He just is. Harry Kane would be curious to listen to any offer from Manchester United this summer before making a decision on his long-term future. That is from The Athletic. Uh, Jack Pitt Brook is the journalist reporting that he, I think he's the Spurs correspondent there um, it's in amongst an article with a bunch of other stuff Barcelona want to sign Robert Lewandowski I, I mean if you want to give a massive contract to a 33 year old doesn't necessarily seem like the best business decision for a club in the financial situation they're in Crystal Palace will listen to offers for Wilf Zaha. I don't think they will. Unless someone comes in and blows them away, I think he's going to stay there for the rest of his career. I really hope he does anyway. Wales forward Gareth Bale will leave Real Madrid at the end of the season, but no decision has been made on where his future lies. Uh, Basically, whatever club will allow him to play one game every two weeks, with his entire focus being on the Welsh national team, I would imagine. Manchester United and Atletico Madrid are among several clubs considering a move for Darwin Nunes. There will be a long list, a long list of clubs in for Darwin Nunes. He is not joining a Europa League team or a Europa Conference League team in United's case. Liverpool are closing in on three new signings. They've reached agreements for Fabio Carvalho of Fulham, Ben Doak of Celtic, and Derry City's 15-year-old Irish winger, Trent Coney doherty The adult deal is done. Uh, the Coney doherty deal, I think, is done. Uh, and Carvalho, that's public knowledge that that one's pretty much done. Manchester City are hopeful of agreeing a new contract with Phil Foden, and rightly so. He is a magnificent young player with sky-high potential. Barcelona have met with Usman Dembele's agent in an attempt to start negotiations. If I was him, I would just make them wait Make them wait till the summer, become a free agent, and then re-sign with them as a free agent. Get them to match whatever offers out there. You'll get big offers. They'll have to pay you a signing fee. Do it that way. Don't re-sign with them yet. Not after how they they treated them. It was a disgrace what they said about him in January. Uh, Ralph Ranić could use his RB Leipzig contacts to bring Conrad Lamer to Old Trafford. That's a silly article. The potential appointment of Eric Ten Hag at Manchester United could see United sign Urien Timber and Anthony. I mean, with the Greenwood situation, Anthony now makes a lot of sense. 
you put him one side, you put Sancho the other. Now you have your wingers for the next 10 years. Uh, Timber, I do like. And I think a timber Varane partnership is very interesting. But the first mistake he makes, people will start clamoring for Harry Maguire to come back in. Because he's 20, he will make mistakes. But I could see both of them, if Ten Hag does move, I could see both of them being players he would want. Uh, Manchester United's new search for a new manager is at the advanced stage with the final decision between Ten Hag and Pochettino imminent. I still think it's going to be Poch. I do. I just still think it's going to be Poch. Dutchman Ten Hag is an active... Oh, this is from the spoofer. We'll ignore that. Um, former England manager and United assistant Steve McLaren is under consideration to become Ten Hag's number two. Should he be appointed? Why? Now, maybe they were at 20 together, were they? Because Ten Hag played there. And let's see, Eric Ten Hag. I know he only managed Utrecht, but I well, before Ajax, but maybe. So he played for 20 twice from 92 to 94, and then again from 96 to 02. He became a manager with Go Ahead Eagles. Sorry, that's my mistake, with Go Ahead Eagles. In 2012, so there's a 10-year gap there, during which time Steve McLaren was manager of 20. He was manager there from 08 to 2010, again from 12 to 13, but that one would be irrelevant. Maybe Ten Hag was a coach. I, I genuinely don't know. Was he a coach at 20 from... 02 to 2012 or any point that overlapped with Steve McLaren's two years there? If so, maybe there's a relationship. It seems like a very tenuous link, though. Um, where are we? Real Madrid are leading the race to sign Arlen Chouameni with Manchester City also interested. City have Rodri. Why would they spend £60 million another player who plays in the same role and does the same thing. Uh, he's not playing as an eight for City. He's just not the right skill set at all. Uh, and don't tell me it's because Fernandinho's leaving. They're not spending 60 million on a backup. Even them, they're not doing that. Manchester United, I'm oh, sorry, Newcastle United are open to selling Alan St. Maxim in the summer. Uh, I could see it. I could see it. He doesn't really fit into how Eddie Howe wants to play. Um, Gonzalo Higuain, who plays for Inter Miami, will retire at the end of the current season, according to his father. It's about, it is time. It is time. For Higuain, the end came really quickly. Really, really quickly. He went over the cliff and never really found his way back. Uh, He hasn't been spectacular, shall we say, for Inter. He's had some injuries. Uh, he got 12 goals in 30 games last year, but other than that, hasn't really lit it up in what's now two and a bit seasons. Um, his last season at Juventus was poor. His loan season between AC and Chelsea was poor. It literally, he got to t- the summer of 2018 and it just all fell apart. He was 31 years of age and all of a sudden it was just over for him. So yeah, retiring is probably the right option. Newcastle have made Reims 19-year-old French striker Hugo Ekatike their top attacking target this summer. I would say, number one, no, they haven't. Number two, this is lazy journalism. It's Football Insider, so it's what you expect. Wayne VC, just a spoofer, an actual shameless spoofer. Um, this is just a recycling of January news. There's no way he's their top attacking target. Now, he may well be one of their attacking targets this summer, and they may well sign him this summer, but they are going to want a starting number nine, and he's not that, not at this point in his career. Let the boy develop. The Magpies Magpies have set out a seven-player 
transfer wish list, which includes Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Dominic Calvert-Lewin would make much more sense as their top attacking target with someone like Eketike as a squad player to develop, to become a partner for Calvert-Lewin. Ronald Arreo, blah, blah, blah. Close to agreeing a new long-term deal. His agent has confirmed ESPN. Nobody nobody really listens to ESPN, but maybe. Uh, Newcastle are set to miss out on one target as AC Milan have agreed target agreed terms with Sven Botman. Uh, Botman has made it clear that that's his preferred destination. Uh, not sure I'd put much faith into this story, though. It is from 90minute.com. Um, Tottenham are expected to trigger their option to buy Dejan Kulisevsky. That's an obvious one. Tottenham can exercise their close to sign him for 25 million rather than wait until the loan expires when the option costs 33.5 million. So yeah, he's on loan for the remainder of this season and next season, and they can sign him whenever they want. Basically Uh, Chelsea's Christian Pulisic has dismissed speculation linking him with a move away. He might want to consider it though. Arsenal will try to sell runner Alex Runnerson in the summer when he returns Notice the word try. Uh, this is from Chris Wheatley, who is the best in the business on Arsenal. But, you know, try is the key word here. And I don't think they're going to be able to sell him all that easily. He is dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. He was the worst keeper in France. The year before they signed him, he was shocking for Arsenal in the limited <laughs> appearances he made. He's If they get 500 grand from this, they should call it a win. Uh, I'll leave it there for today, folks. Enjoy the games tonight. Real Madrid at Stamford Bridge taking on Chelsea. Bayern v Real should be a decent game. But that Everton-Burnley game at Turf Moor, under the lights... Lots of long balls. Oh, it could be beautiful. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.